Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets, ideas can change the world. I am absolutely fascinated with how people think, feel, and act. And in the area of risk resilience and security, these professionals feel the same way. We have to know how people think, feel, and act to be able to protect people and things, the assets of companies and people. And, uh, and so when I can find somebody who's not only educated to be able to understand how the mind, the spirit, the heart, and the behavior integrate into a holistic picture of their future behavior, that to me is a fascinating subject. So today I have Marisa Randazzo, who is currently the executive director of the Ontic Center of Excellence, but more importantly, has uh, applied her learnings uh, in, um, as a chief research psychologist for the Secret Service, and then the co-founder and CEO of a threat management company called Sigma. So Marisa, great to have you on today. Ron, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, as you know, as you know, because everyone knows who listens to this broadcast, and I just told you that this is unscripted. I have a, a number of different tracks I'd like to follow. So let's just have a great conversation. So I'm going to take that opening remark for a second. Describe for me, if I'm right, that you have this study of mind study of heart and spirit, study of behavior that's molded you, that's fashioned you, that's shaped your thinking. Tell, tell us more about that. So, um, so the field I'm in is behavioral threat assessment and, um, and we'll get into details of kind of what that means, but, but essentially trying to, trying to prevent harm before it occurs. Physical violence, sabotage, stalking, things like that. And I got into the field in a, in a weird way. Um, I was uh, sort of captured by um, a course I took as, a, as an undergrad in how psychology could improve the criminal justice system. And I had this incredibly passionate professor, Saul Kass, and I mentioned him all the time because he just, were it not for Saul, I wouldn't be in this field. Um, and, and I was just kind of hooked by that his passionate belief that behavioral science can improve criminal justice. And, and so that's how I kind of got into the field in, in the first place. Um, went to, to graduate school and, and my graduate program was sort of training me to become a professor. And I, I didn't want to work in academia. Personally, I didn't feel like it was a good fit for me. I wanted to work in an applied setting. I wanted to go out into the world where people actually needed this research. So whether it was the court system or um, you know, wherever it might be. And I fell into an opportunity with the U.S. Secret Service. And um, as a graduate student intern, and I, I volunteered my time, but I got to learn the agency and got to see that it had a small behavioral science unit that was there to help make what the agency did of preventing violence to the president help to do a better job at that. And so I found that applied setting that, that I really wanted to use and wanted to be a part of. And I found a mission at the Secret Service that really um, inspired me, the, the prevention of harm, keeping someone safe, keeping democracy safe 
by the work I was doing, you know, behind a desk in a cubicle in headquarters, that I really could, I could be part of a big machinery that was keeping a person safe and keeping democracy safe. And, and that was incredibly inspiring. Um, and part of what I think was most surprising for me along that academic and then professional journey initially was that I discovered things about how to keep a president or someone safe that I wouldn't have guessed and certainly hadn't seen in movies, hadn't read in you know, crime fiction books, that so much of what Secret Service agents would do to prevent someone who was trying to kill the president from doing so was that they acted much more like a social worker than as a federal agent or, or a law enforcement official. Meaning they were looking at why was this person considering violence in the first place? And the research the Secret Service was doing that I became part of eventually showed us that violence directed at public officials usually had some personal underlying cause. Someone was acting out of desperation, may have thought that, that, that the president was the best person to go to for help and then didn't get that help or had some, some misunderstanding or even delusion that uh, the president was somehow to blame or that engaging in violence would help them solve the problems. But most of these people were acting out of desperation, didn't care if they lived or died anymore were actively suicidal in some cases. And so that the way to help, the way to stop violence in those circumstances was to try to help the person, including let me help you get the prescription that you can't. Let me help you get to your doctor's appointments. Let me help you get connected to psychiatric care in those cases where that was relevant. And so I was astounded by looking at you know, federal agents who, who would protect the president also serving in these cases like social workers and like allies. And it, and it really surprised me and helped to spark the rest of the research that I was then part of in studying school shootings and why do people carry out school shootings, workplace shootings, uh, stalking of, of you know, domestic violence incidents. And so so part of that early experience then informed the research I did within the Secret Service and the work I've done, practical work I've done since then to help people in protective roles, whatever those may be, school principal, school resource officer, HR director, uh, corporate security director, law enforcement, helping all those people in protective roles to understand that prevention is possible and that so much of prevention gets down to the individual level of what's driving this behavior in the first place? Why is this person resorting to violence? And most importantly, what can we do to help to get them off the pathway to violence, to head them in a better direction, get them onto a better path? Why I think that is so profound, Marisa, why that is so profound, that the phrase prevention is possible, is when I entered the industry, I was told that prevention wasn't possible. We just have to be ready when it happens. So here you are learning prevention is possible, but you have to be willing and have the tools to understand root cause. So, so just a, a quick question on that one. Since you've specialized in POTUS kind of threats, you specialize in school kind of threats. Do you see some underlying patterns that 
of behavior across all those spectrums? Yeah, we do. And it comes from research that my colleagues and I conducted at the Secret Service that has, has continued since. Some excellent research conducted by the FBI, similar research conducted by academic researchers. And the reason I focus on Secret Service research and FBI research is that those two agencies actually have access to primary source materials like investigative records and, and direct, direct access to the perpetrators that you typically don't get in academic research. So there really is kind of a, there's an importance to that research coming out of those agencies. But wherever that research has been conducted, we see remarkably consistent findings in the behavior that attackers, school shooters, assassins engage in bef before they get to the point of violence, that left of bang behavior. And the researchers in the field has started to refer to this as a pathway to violence, meaning there's very similar, a very similar trajectory or progression of behaviors that, that happen before they get to the point of acting violently. And we even see this in insider threats to critical information systems where the act of violence is actually sabotaged to an information system as opposed to a physical attack. So this pathway to violence, pathway to sabotage it, it is something that typically starts with an idea to do harm. So usually you've got someone who is wrestling with their own personal problems, not solving things well, and, and they start to think, well, I don't care if I live or die, or I want to engage in some harm. And so that first part is this, this idea. I want, to, I want to do something. I want to harm the people responsible for my current life circumstance. I want to get back at someone, some revenge. Or it may be fueled by some sort of, of, sort of problem in their thinking. It could be a delusion, uh, something like that, where they, they think this person they want to harm or this place they want to harm or event they want to harm is somehow to blame or that harming them will solve some problem. So anyway, there's a personal aspect that gets them onto this pathway in the first place. They come up with some idea to do harm and then they start to look at it further. They, they start to engage in more detailed planning. And oftentimes the planning is, is noticed by others around them. So they're not operating in a vacuum. They're not operating under the radar. Other people are starting to see what they're doing, starting to worry, but they don't necessarily know what to do with it. And then they go from idea to planning to what the FBI calls preparation, meaning they actually have to, to get the, the weaponry they wanna use, whatever materials they wanna use, gear they wanna have in order to do this harm. And then they get to the final stage, which is implementation of carrying out the act of harm or sabotage themselves. So this pathway to violence that, that we in the field of threat assessment call is this idea plan, preparation, implementation. And the FBI has actually come out with recent research where saying preparation, when we see that someone's at that preparation stage, they're actually very close to carrying out harm, usually within two weeks tops. So when we work an active case and someone, we find someone's at that point of, of getting access to weapons, getting the gear they want, we know we have very little time left in which to get them off that pathway of violence. But it is still possible to prevent even at that late stage. It's so funny when I was uh, sitting here taking notes on your pathway to violence and of course four steps you put in there but I actually after the second step planning I made I inserted three because I thought you were going to do five steps 
and I put three, begins to communicate either viscerally, you know, or, you know, implicitly, right? And, and so is noticed by others. So they're communicating intent. Well, that's the other piece of it. it. It's not just that their behavior is noticed by others throughout that whole pathway, not just as a separate step. Throughout that whole pathway, they are typically telling other people exactly what they're planning to do. And when I have interviewed, and my colleagues and I have interviewed people in prison who've carried out these horrific violent events and asked them, well, why did you tell someone beforehand? Because they, they have. The response we'd usually get back is, in a way, I wanted someone to stop me. I was having these thoughts and I started down, like starting this preparation, but part of them didn't want to be doing what they were doing. And I want to emphasize this. So A, you're absolutely right. They communicate their violent plans beforehand. So word is out there and it's out there on social media and it's on YouTube videos and it's in Reddit chat rooms and it's in direct conversation. It's in homework assignments. They are telling other people what they are thinking about doing and planning to do. But they're doing that because they want to be stopped. So we have to look at threats as a cry for help. Someone stop me. I'm having these thoughts. I'm starting these plans. I don't want to do this. And I want to emphasize this is so important because we, especially as we look at, at working with students and teenagers and young adults who are planning something violent. What we heard time and again in talking with school shooters in prison that we had a chance to talk to is that part of them to a person, they were saying, look, part of me felt like I had to do this. Part of me didn't want to at the same time. This ambivalence, it's not indifference, not they didn't care what was going to happen. They were ambivalent. They felt torn about the violence they were planning. So when I work an active case and we teach other people how to work these cases, I try to emphasize, look, this person you're talking to across the table, on the phone, whatever, there's a part of them, no matter how much planning they've done, no matter how committed they feel like, or this is the only option they have left, there's a part of that person that doesn't want to do the violence they're planning to do. That's the part you get in and work with to figure out, all right, let's, let's get you away from this. There's, there are other ways to solve these problems. Let's work together to figure out what those are so you don't have to resort to violence. <laughs> this jumps out at me so much based on your background. Um, we're in we're having a conversation in the midst of a crisis of consciousness in this country around these mass shootings, right? We're, we're having this conversation right now in the middle of that. And what we do know, and you know this from your educational background as well as your applied background, you know what we normally like to do is objectify people. That's how we can call them evil. Yeah. But these are real people. These are real people. They may do an evil thing if we don't stop them in time. Yeah. But if we want to get to the root cause, if we want to solve this problem in this country, we have to know that they're not evil. They're real people. We just didn't catch them in time. They are real people with problems that are usually solvable or conditions, mental health concerns that are treatable, but we need to find them before they get to the point of doing harm. What they do is evil. The behavior is evil, but they are not evil people. And, and I think it's so, our, our media often does a disservice in covering these incidents because they use terms like monster 
they will use terms incorrectly like psychopath or sociopath. Very, very, very few. I've, I've handled thousands of cases in the course of my career of, of threats that we were able to prevent of and looking backward at situations that actually occurred. A incredibly small percentage would actually qualify for that psychopath or sociopath. And the, and the reason I think it's important for people to understand this distinction is that if we feel like we're dealing with a psychopath, this is someone who is literally incapable of empathy, doesn't care what they do to others. The majority of people who carry out mass shootings don't fit that definition. They do care. In fact, they are overwhelmed by the problems they are facing and they feel like they've got no way out. As a threat assessment team, as a law enforcement, as a practitioner, you can get in and help them find some other way out and keep them off that pathway to violence. They don't revert back. So now, if I can, Mm -hmm. uh, because again, following your path, academic to applied research, integrating uh, 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 the social with the behavioral. Um, you went through all this, and then we just went through the pathway to violence, the five steps. And what dawned on me is each of these five steps, if you will, have um, uh, are um, sensor-driven. So for example, if I'm wrestling with the personal, and I'm having psychological problems, someone probably notices at that point too, step one, right? Step one. Step two in the plan, the very fact that I start planning these things and I'm going through social media and I'm looking at other case studies to see how I might do things, that's a sensor in today's, in today's mm -hmm. uh, environment. When I start communicating with others, like you mentioned, that could be on social media, that could be through email, and then the preparation, and then finally the implementation. All these five steps can be collected. Information can be collected, and a picture can start forming that can help you identify them maybe even further than a couple of weeks out. Am I right on this? Oh, absolutely. And, and this, is, this is why when when we train teams in schools, colleges, workplaces, at a community level in law enforcement, what we're training them to do is, is to collect information to try to figure out and identify someone who's on that pathway to violence at whatever stage, idea, planning, preparation, implementation. The communication is, is, that, is often the first thing that they hear about. And the, the challenge is that what we need to do is help encourage and empower people who are going to be the ones seeing and hearing the troubling behavior to bring it somewhere. Yes. To someone who can do it. And that's one of the big things that we found in studying school shootings around the U S was that not only do the vast majority of school shooters tell other people about their plans beforehand, but the people they tell are typically peers. They're other students. They're, they're, they're similar age siblings or social media connections. So that, our, our tweens and teens and young adults actually are our greatest untapped potential protection resource, prevention resource, because they are the ones likely to know long before any adult in a school or community would. They're the ones who are going to notice. They're the ones who are going to be hearing about these plans. And we have cases that have gotten some attention locally in media, et cetera, of, of kids who've 
stood up and said something. Hey, I'm worried about my friends. I'm worried about bringing this forward because I don't want to become a target. I'm worried because I don't want to get my friend in trouble, whatever the worry is, but they overcame that worry and they brought it to someone who could help. And an, an attack was averted or prevented because they stood up and brought it forward. And therefore we have to be careful when we, if we create punitive measures too early on and we close the doors of that communication, we don't, we don't make it safe enough to communicate you know, with your, uh, uh, the behavior of your peers. If we worry too much <laughs> around privacy versus communal welfare, if those things aren't in place, we're not, never gonna get that data. So that's absolutely right. How we respond to reports that people bring forward, students especially, is really critical. And, and this is actually why our previous attempts in schools to implement something like zero tolerance policies actually had a chilling effect. It, it had the opposite effect because students knew, well, I'm aware of a friend who's talking about planning something violent, but they're, they're in a really bad place right now. If I, if I alert the school, they're gonna be punished. They're gonna be suspended. They're gonna be expelled. That's gonna make their situation worse. So schools and communities, it's really important to have a, a measured response when someone brings a threat forward to say, hey, I became aware of this. I don't know if it's serious or not. I'm worried, but I'm really worried, especially about my friend because she's not doing well or he's not doing well. So this is where behavioral threat assessment is particularly helpful because you're bringing together team, a team of people from multiple disciplines. It's not just criminal justice or not just administrative. You've got school counselors, you've got others who can take a look and say, what's going on with this kid? And, and most importantly, what can we do to help so that they stay safe, our school stays safe, having that measured approach is absolutely right. So Marisa, I come, as you know, I spend most of my time in the commercial marketplace, in the private marketplace, not in the public, not in the government, not in schools. Uh, but what I do know is this, uh, most businesses don't have the wherewithal to hire a fleet of Marisas. Okay, or Dr. Randazas, we don't. So, so when that happens, how do we become in the commercial marketplace, how do we become more efficient in detecting something before it happens? And it's ironic because now you're taking all your learnings and you're working with and through an evolving technology platform that has the promise to provide the commercial business with those kind of tools? So technology, I feel, is an absolutely necessary component of corporate safety, school safety going forward. But I wanna be very clear, we are not talking about artificial intelligence. We are not talking about a computer making a decision about threat or risk or prevention here. We are talking about computer-based tools, technology that can help the people doing this work do it a lot more efficiently. So what we have been doing now within Ontic, and, and one of the reasons that we were so excited that Ontic wanted to acquire Sigma, we were providing all these services through Sigma, the company I co-founded, and Ontic has helped us really force multiply in that we are now doing not only the same training that we have been doing and, and helping entities once they're trained with specific handling specific cases, but that, that what Ontic brought to the table and we now work and provide under Ontic 
is an ability to, in one place, see all of the active situations you're working on, screen them. You don't necessarily have to go through this entire threat assessment process with everything that comes in in a social media threat, for example, or you can do a quick screening, but you have a way to capture that. So if you develop more information down the road on something you screened previously, right now go through the threat assessment. Companies, especially companies and schools are facing a dramatic increase in the number of reports brought forward, threats that they are facing and aware of, which is helpful because it's, we still, we stand a better chance of preventing some harm. But at the same time, for the people tasked and responsible for handling those reports, the increased volume is increased work. So technology, as we see it, is now not just a desirable, but a critical and vital component of doing this behavioral threat assessment work very well. So thank you very much, Marisa Randazzo. This has been a great conversation. There's hope for us out there. We don't have to wait for an incident. We don't have to wait for the resilience plans we should have been put in place. There is a chance to get a hold of these threats and help people at the same time. Thank you, Marisa Randazza. Thank you.